Today's scripture reading is from Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27. Please read with me the verses in bold. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your minna has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your minna has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your minna, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming, I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the minna from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. My name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors here. How about, uh, how about a hand for, Dan for Pastor Daniel working hard this morning, yeah. right? <laughs> uh, two more shout outs that I don't have permission uh, for, but I'm going to do anyway. One uh, to uh, Northern California state champion in soccer, Caleb Yoon and his team. Congratulations. And uh, to Mr. and Mrs. John and Naomi Funk, who are here for the first time as man and wife. Welcome. Uh, Lord, uh, we pray that uh, the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts would be pleasing to you. Amen. If you work hard and believe in yourself, you can be anything you want to be. A few years ago, I was watching football on 
television on a Sunday afternoon, and uh, in the game that I was watching, the veteran quarterback of the home team surpassed some sort of all-time record. I don't remember exactly what it was. Maybe it was an all-time passing record or touchdowns or something like that, but it was Hall of Fame event, and they stopped the game and uh, celebrated with this quarterback. They presented him with the game ball on television. His family came down from the stands and looked on. And in the touching moments that followed, he knelt down to his, uh, he knelt down and he hugged his young sons. And over a hot mic on national television, you could hear him say something to the effect of, if you work hard, and believe in yourself, you can be anything you want to be. It was really touching. I think maybe even uh, there were some tears uh, from the commentators who spoke about it and dwelled on it pretty much for the rest of the telecast, about how inspiring this was. The problem is, it's not true. As much as Uh, Each one of us would like it to be uh, as much as this Hall of Fame quarterback would like it to be true. It just there just simply isn't a direct mathematical equation that says hard work plus diligence plus belief equals success. There's a lot more to the concoction. It's not an equation. It's more like some weird chemistry, right? Uh, you got to throw in circumstances and family of origin and timing and relationships and health and, dare I say, while preaching, a little bit of dumb luck. And all of those factors mixed in together and maybe comes out success. And who's defining success anyway? If we think about it, Uh, For example, we know, if we let ourselves think about it, that some of the most hardworking and diligent people in the world are poor migrant grandmas making it happen for their families, right? And we would probably have a few folks who the world considers rich and famous that are flighty and flaky and allergic to hard work. But even if there was uh, a direct and indelible correlation between hard work and success, it still wouldn't mean that you can be anything that you want. No matter how much either of those little boys believed and no matter how hard they worked, neither of them will ever be the prime minister of Japan. They weren't born in Japan, they can't be the prime minister, and neither of them will ever give birth and become a loving mother. You just can't be anything you want. But inspirational quotes like this one and others, we print on posters, right? We put up in our bedrooms and in locker rooms because they inspire us and because they fit well with the myth of our culture that we want to believe, which is that we are the masters of our own kingdoms, We write our own stories. We are the heroes of our own epics. And so we tell ourselves the myth that we believe. 
And if you read Jesus's parable of the 10 minas in Luke 19 that we did this morning too quickly, you could come away thinking that Jesus is giving his disciples similar instructions. Work hard with what God has given you. Be diligent and you will succeed and you'll have something to show for yourself when you stand before God. And we like that. We, like, we would like that to be the message. We like it partially because we live in a westernized, industrialized, individualized, commodified consumer society, and we value efficiency. We value productivity. And uh, we like it partially because we want to be masters of our own fate. We want to be told it's just math. Just hard work plus belief equals success. And we know what kind of success we want that to mean. Show me what I have to do to work with. Show me what I have to work with and what hard work I have to do so that I can prove to God that I can be a success. But is Jesus calling us to success? Is he saying, be a success for God? I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. In fact, I think if we read carefully, we'll find that this isn't a celebration of productivity or efficiency. In verse 17, which we just read, the king celebrates his servant and he commends him for what? He says, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful. It's a celebration of faithfulness. And, well, what does that look like? What does that mean? What does faithfulness look like? What does it look like to be faithful in the place that God has put you and with the resources and the family of origin and the, all of the concoction that you find yourself with. I think that's what this parable is about, faithfulness, particularly A, faithfulness with what you've been given, and then B, faithfulness in the face of opposition. Let's take a look at those two things. Faithfulness with what you've been given. People in Jerusalem would have been familiar with the idea of a king who had to go away to get a kingdom. At the time of Jesus's ministry, the king of Israel was actually just a puppet monarch of the Roman Empire. And so when Herod the Great, who's the Herod that's mentioned in Jesus's nativity stories, when he died, his son Archelaus was the natural heir to the throne. But before he could claim authority in Israel, he actually had to make an arduous and uncertain journey to Rome where Caesar, uh, in this case, it would have been uh, Caesar Augustus, gave him the kingdom, put his stamp of approval on him and said, yes, you can be king of Israel. The parable that we read this morning is near the end of Jesus's life and his ministry. He and his Disciples are approaching the stories we'll read in a few weeks in Passion Week when he comes to Jerusalem in a triumphal entry and we read of his passion and his death. And as they approach Jerusalem, Jesus' disciples are expecting that when they get there, the kingdom will come. That all of the, the things that they have been uh, expecting from the Old Testament about the Messiah being the king of the Jews uh, freedom from Roman rule, vindication of Israel, and a, a new king who will sit on David's throne. They're expecting that to happen immediately. But Jesus says that what's about to happen is actually going to be more like what happened for Archelaus. He says that 
this king is going to have to go away for an uncertain amount of time before he can return again and be king as he was expected. Notice Jesus isn't denying their expectation that he'd be king, that he's the son of David entitled to the throne of Israel. But what his followers don't yet understand is that he'll have to travel to a place beyond Jerusalem to be crowned king. In fact, he'll need to pass through death and through an open grave on his way to ascending to the right hand of the Father where he'll be crowned with glory and honor before eventually returning to be king and leader of his people. The book of Philippians puts it like this. Philippians chapter 2 says, Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the very form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, and being born in the likeness of man, being found in human form, he humbled himself, being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the, the, the kingdom that Jesus was bringing, um, the, king, the kingdom that Jesus brings has an already and a not yet sort of character to it. Uh, we believe that he has already conquered the grave. He's already ushered in a new era when believers by faith can live free from the tyranny of guilt and sin, from the, uh, live free from the fear of death. But we also believe that he has not yet returned to bring that kingdom of justice, to wipe away every tear from every eye. Uh, to make all things right. And so we live in a moment in a kingdom that is already initiated but not yet realized. Faithfulness has to do with what we do in that meantime, in that in-between time. And so in the parable in verse, four, in, in verse 13, like in real life, uh, Jesus says the king must go away to claim his kingdom but before he goes in the parable, the king gives his servant, 10 servants, a big financial gift. Each one of them gets one mina, or mina, I'm not sure. Uh, and that would have been, I'm told, about 100 days wages. So it's like three months pay. So it's pretty big. Um, it's not a fortune. And, but as far as we know, it's a free and uh, generous gift that as far as we know, none of them had earned or deserved. He, put, he, got, he gave out 10, 10 minutes to 10 servants, and the parable uh, says that he went away. Jesus teaches in other places that to whom much is given, much is required. Certainly, uh, we're being told that uh, with God's gifts come responsibility. But here it says, that he gave them 10 minutes and sent to them, engage in business until I come. And I think that that little word that we have translated there, until, is a key to understanding uh, what Jesus is teaching. Uh, that word that we have translated until is the Greek word hoti, and it has a range of meanings. It could mean until, it could mean, uh, depending on the context, uh, in which, or it could mean because. So 
If we understand it like it's translated here to mean until, uh, then Jesus is saying, get busy. Get busy. You don't have much time. Make as much money as you can while I'm gone because I expect you to turn a profit and I expect success. That's what the king is saying. Uh, Get busy until I get back and I'm going to see what you've done. But if we translate the word because, then it transforms how we understand what the master is saying. It puts the focus not on how much you can produce before time runs out, but on how servants engage in the business that they do. Are they doing things in a way that shows that they believe the king is coming back? Engage in business because I'm returning. Can we look at the things we do and say, I did it this way because I believe that we have a king and that he is returning? Jesus is challenging us to see everything that we have as a kingdom resource, right? Everything that God has given you. Yes, that means your time and your, and your money on your skills. But think about this. It also means your pain. It means your grief. It means your struggle to understand that you're stewarding those things as well in a way that says, I believe we have a king who's coming back. This is what the parable says the master rewards. It says that he celebrates the servant's faithfulness. Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful with little. And I like how it puts that little in there, right? You've been faithful with a little. It's humbling. You haven't been given very much. We haven't, uh, he doesn't let anyone think that even what they've been given is really that important or the center of the world. I think that that debunks some of those myths, right? It debunks that success and production and profit are the only measurement of our worth. It's not what's being said. Um, and if success and production and profit uh, is not the measurement of our worth, uh, then many of us are doomed, right, to frustration and failure. That's how we've been measuring things. Many of us will always be frustrated unless we become a Hall of Fame quarterback. And then even for those individuals, just for a few seasons, then you're back with the rest of us. I think it also debunks the idea that some work is more important than other work. Some work is more valuable than other work. Is being a surgeon more important than being a janitor? Is running a small business less spiritually important than running a nonprofit? Is being a pastor more spiritually important than volunteering in the nursery? Let's put it this way. We all know stories of hurt and loss because of pastors who were not faithful in the calling that they were given. We know surgeons who care more about profit than healing, and we know nonprofits that steal from those that they purport to serve. Meanwhile, we also know school janitors who are beloved by every student. We know small businesses that hold communities together and We all, if you grew up in the church, probably know the name of the nursery worker who shared Jesus with you, even if you can't remember the name of the guy who was preaching in the other room. 
Which of these did the job they were given in a way that showed that they believed they had a king that was coming back? We'll get a chance, they say to themselves, I'll get a chance to show him how I've invested what I've been given. Tim Keller says, if the God of the Bible exists, if there is a true reality beneath and behind this one, and, that, and this life is not the only life, then every good endeavor, even the simplest ones, pursued in response to God's calling, can matter forever. Is what you're doing allowing you to participate with Christ in renewing the world and loving your neighbor? There are some jobs that you probably shouldn't do. There's activities you probably shouldn't participate in, places that you might be unwise to be. But most of the time, the question is not about what you are doing, but how you are doing what you are doing. Are you doing it for your own success, to write yourself as the hero of the story, to increase your own reputation? Or are you participating with Christ and renewing the world, loving your neighbor because... You believe that there's a king and that he's coming back. Faithfulness has to do with what we do and how we do it in the meantime. There's another plot in this parable, however, and it's faithfulness in the face of opposition. It says, uh, it tells us a story and it says that even uh, as he approached Jerusalem, Jesus knew that in the meantime, some of those who were with him, some of those who were following him at that moment would participate in his death. Many would reject his authority. Some who were with him at that moment would refuse to believe in his resurrection and his, or acknowledge his ascension. And still more amongst the number would lose hope and fall away because of the delay in the time between his death and resurrection and his promised return. In the meantime, that's where we find ourselves. In the meantime. In verse 14, the parable actually says this, but, this, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Olivia, my wife, and I went to a 90s party last night, a 90s-themed party. Uh, it was full of middle-aged folks dressed like their favorite characters from the Friends sitcom and dancing to songs that were pop hits 25 years ago. And when the Backstreet Boys came on, all of the girls, forgive me, women, went crazy. And it actually reminded me of the uh, the boy band phenomenon that I lived through in the, in the 90s and, in, and before that. I remember groups of girls that were rivals at our school simply because one group was allegiant to NSYNC and the other was allegiant to the Backstreet Boys. You couldn't like both bands. You had to choose. I even remember, and this is a little bit further back, but groups of girls 
who limited the number of friends they could have because you could only have as many friends in your friend group as there were members in New Kids on the Block. Because each girl was loyal to a different boy, right? I like Donnie. Well, I like Johnny. We can't have two Donnie likers <laughs> in our friend group. <laughs> Kingdoms are about allegiance and loyalty. The king in the parable asks his servants to be loyal to him while he's away. And what they do with the gifts that he gives them reveals their allegiance. Who amongst them is operating with the expectation that they would see him again and would have to give an account? And who amongst them uh, is not expecting him to keep his promise or even more working against his being able to return? There's a similar parable in Matthew 25. It's a parable about a master entrusting three different servants with an investment. And it's similar, but this parable in Luke is a little bit different. And it's striking to me because one of the details is that 10 different servants are given a, a minor. And upon his return, only three servants approach him. We only have the story of three servants approaching the master. What happened to the other seven? Two servants have publicly staked their claim with business and investment that the, in, the, in the business that they have conducted that they are servants of a returning king and they expect to greet him when he arrives. There seems to be one servant who lived in fear and indecision. He's buried his gift just in case he's going to be asked about it, but he's kind of keeping his options open in case the guy doesn't return. But what about the other seven? One likely conclusion is that they are amongst those who have been noted to hate him and have sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. They took what he had given them and rejected him, refused to be identified with him, and bet against him. Whatever they did with the mina that he had given them, they did under the assumption that he was never coming back. And they declared so publicly with what they did with the gift that they had been given. And so Jesus is teaching in the parable that people will hate his kingdom. And they'll try to block it from coming. And those who want to follow him will have to do so in the midst of a, a hostile world in which it feels like the king is absent. And the challenge of the parable is this. Will you be identified with Jesus and his kingdom? Will you do so when you're surrounded by people or family or culture that is either uh, intentionally or unknowingly in opposition to him. And for most of us, the answer, the way that we answer that question, will I identify with Jesus in the midst of opposition? For most of us, the way that we answer that question will not be known to the world by some heroic stand against tyranny or some martyr's death for our faith. For most of us, our 
identification with Jesus will show in what we do with the little gifts and opportunities that he gives us in our lives. Our stewardship of our time and of our talent, of our relationships, of the opportunities that we have, of our treasure. What we do with those things will betray our allegiances in this life. And the story ends on a chilling note. Not a surprise ending. Uh, any king, having been crowned and returning as he promised, uh, gathers all of those who have publicly rejected him and his rule and removes them from his kingdom. In this case, permanently. A kingdom of divided against itself cannot stand, but those who invested in the anticipation of his return, to them he said, well done. To everyone who has, more will be given. And so it's truly a, a parable about the allegiances of our hearts. Will we live only for ourselves and for our own kingdoms? Will we, will we uh, live believing that the only king is me or Will we identify with a servant king, Christ, who went to the cross to win us back from the dead and invite us into a kingdom of life and justice and forgiveness? In the end, if in fact Jesus is who he says he is, then as the parable says, he will give each of us over to the allegiance of our own heart. If we have said, I do not want this man to reign over me, then he will give us what we want. But if, we, if, he, if he returns and that he finds in our midst faithfulness, then he says to the one who has, even more will be given. My friends, each week we gather in this room to hear the good news. And this morning, the good news is that we do not live in a reality where uh, success is what will define us in front of God. We live, the scripture says, in a reality where none of us will measure up if that is the case. The gospel, the good news is that we have a king, a good and righteous, graceful king, Jesus, who went away he went away because something had to be done about sin. Something had to be done about our rebellion. And this, the message of the cross is that he died in our place and went away to uh, that place we should have been, into death. And in his resurrection, returned to be crowned king at the right hand of the Father. And the promise is that he will return and that for those who believe that's going to be a joyous feast and celebration, a day in which we'll be able to look at uh, just the, the little that he gave us and know uh, that faithfulness is what has mattered because of belief. And so my friends, I want to tell you this morning, we have a king and he is coming back. Do you believe that?